All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And please remain standing as I read God's word. For this is the word of God. We're going to read verses 6 through 11. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does, not, who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. You may be seated. Okay, well, we are returning this morning to our study of Romans. We're now in chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we were looking last week at the first five verses, which really is a, a thought that is um, connected to the first chapter, especially verses 18 through 32, um, about how the wrath of God is upon all the ungodly and the unrighteous who have suppressed the truth. And we saw um, a long list that Paul enumerates through the Holy Spirit of what it means to be unrighteous, um, really from verses 29 uh, through 32 all manner of unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, um, backbiters, slanderers, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, Unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. So we we really unpacked how um, the wrath of God, this abandonment idea, judicial abandonment, is effective over every person in this world. God has given them over to a debased mind, a mind that cannot function properly. It doesn't think God's thoughts after him doesn't think spiritually. It only thinks carnally, fleshly. And as Paul is reading this list, <clears throat> you can imagine that the Jews are standing to the side and every self-righteous person, and they're saying, yes, Paul, we applaud you. That's exactly right. All the heathen, the nations of the world, the pagan, they don't know you, and they are filled with wickedness. And Paul says in verse in chapter two, verse one, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another, 
you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we see that in verse 17 of this chapter, he's addressing the Jews primarily. That's his audience. And really, by extension, any self-righteous person, any externally religious person who would look at the uh, outlandish sins of others, the um, ones that are plain and evident for all to see and say, they're guilty, God, but they're unwilling to look and examine their own hearts and to see that all the same seed of sin is flourishing within their own heart and comes out maybe in different ways, but they're inexcusable because they do the same things. And so really the first couple of verses in chapter two, Paul is saying there is a law and it condemns every single person who practices evil. It condemns the ungodly and the unrighteous pagan as well as the self-righteous Jew. It's the law of God. It's the law of his truth, which is the true standard of judgment for everybody. No one is exempt from it. No one can escape its shadow. And in verse three, he says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you're actually exempt from the sweeping judgment of God? What's your standard? Is it horizontal on this plane, judging yourself in relative goodness and badness or evil compared with other people? Or is your standard perfection, which is God's standard, the holiness of God? And in verse 4, he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness? We talked about how that word for goodness means mercy. It's the word that's used in the Old Testament, chesed, which means the loving kindness, the mercy, the faithfulness of God. And he says to the self-righteous person, are you despising? Are you thinking little of God's mercy? Don't you understand that the reason he hasn't consumed you already is because his goodness is the only way that anyone ever comes to repentance? And the problem is in verse five, this is the, the key problem. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that means unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The reason you're blind and you can't see that you're doing the same things or are unwilling to judge yourself guilty as you pronounce judgment on others is because you have a hard heart. And all you're doing is treasuring up wrath against yourself, against the day of wrath. And we talked about that day as the final day of judgment, which is coming for all men. And God's judgment is righteous and will be righteous. So we looked at three points last week. The principles of God's judgment. The first was God's judgment is righteous. It's not like men's judgment. It's not um, flawed. It's not hypocritical. It's based on truth, and he himself is the truth, and he defines what is true. So everything that he judges is based on himself. The judgment we saw is inescapable. No one is exempt. Everyone must give account for themselves. We saw that it's imminent, imminent meaning it's sure to come. And that's verse 5. There is a day that's appointed. It's marked on God's calendar. No one knows when it is except the Father only. But it is coming. It surely will come. 
And today I want to explore with you a fourth point about the judgment of God. And it's this, and this is really the big idea for today. The judgment of God is according to works. The judgment of God is according to works. Let that settle in for a minute because at first it may sound a little strange. The structure that we're going to look at in these verses is the following. Paul is going to make a statement in verse 6. He says, who will render to each one according to his deeds? Then in verses 7 through 10, he's going to illustrate his statement by two groups of people, those who receive eternal life and those who receive eternal damnation. And then he's going to summarize his statement in verse 11, where he says, there's no partiality with God. There's no partiality with God. So let's take this first verse, excuse me, first in verse six, keeping in mind this point, the judgment of God is according to works. Verse six, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Render, render apodidomi in Greek. It means to pay what is due, to recompense, to give to someone in exchange for what they've given. It's to reward. That's the idea of rendering. And what's being rendered will render to each according to his deeds. Deeds are ergon, they are works, uh, labor, or the business with which one is occupied. We're going to get into that a little bit more as we go here. But this quote, who will render to each according to their deeds, this is taken directly from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 12 where he says, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? It's put in the form of a question. Very reminiscent, if you remember, of Abraham when he was speaking with God about the judgment impending on Sodom. And he said in Genesis 18, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's right. He will make a separation. The Lord will separate the righteous from the wicked, the wheat from the chaff. He will render a righteous judgment. So this is, someone might ask, um, Kind of an interesting statement. He will render to each according to his deeds. I mean, is Paul teaching some kind of works righteousness here? The answer is absolutely not. I mean, if we just back up within the context of his own letter here in chapter 1, verse 17, he said, for in it, referring to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, Paul is introduced, and he will clarify as we go along here, that the righteousness of God is always, has always been by faith. The just will live by faith. Anyone who believes God, takes him at his word, is the one who receives the righteousness of God to his account. It's imputed to him. It's credited to his account simply by faith, by believing God's word. That's the teaching. So we cannot possibly mean that God is going to render according to my deeds and as if I could do some good deeds that God would reward with eternal life. 
What is this principle then that he's talking about? Well, it's the principle of sowing and reaping. And it's a principle that we see throughout the scripture. Take, for example, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah says this, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. It's pretty clear, right? Or take Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. The Lord will render to each according to his doings, his deeds. Or take Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now, important to understand that this word for works in Matthew 16, 27 is the Greek word that means to practice. The word in Greek even sounds like practice. It's praxis. And so he's saying there is a pattern. There is a practice that man has called his works. And God will evaluate that. He will consider that. And he will reward to everyone according to that pattern of work. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Listen to this. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And Paul to the Galatians says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So the principle is established. What a man sows, that he also reaps. The farmer plants seed and up comes the product of what that seed is. He doesn't say God will render to each according to his nationality. There is no national judgment in the sense that God will only judge groups of people by nation. The Jews as one group will be judged. Um, the Greeks as another nation will be judged. The Romans will be judged. No, he doesn't say that. He also doesn't say who will render to each according to his family. Oh, well, my dad, my mom is saved. And so I'm going to get into heaven because they're saved. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that you will, he will render to each according to privilege, like the Jews could claim, right? They had the law of God. They had circumcision. They had lineage directly to Abraham that they claimed as kind of their get-out-of-hell-free card, if you will. We are different. We are separate from the world. No. None of those things. Not even church affiliation. It can't mean salvation is based on works, but judgment is. This is the idea for today. Judgment is. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is a very familiar verse. Verses, verses 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith, that which grants you righteousness by grace, is a gift of God. If someone could just do this on their own, if they could um, figure it out, so to speak, 
then they'd have some reason to boast, wouldn't they? They'd be able to boast before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm smarter than that other person. Um, Lord, I, I had more privilege than that other person. Whatever it is, they're looking to themselves. But salvation is always by grace through faith. So what does it mean? Well, he says that the judgment is individual, first of all. Look, he says, to each one, who will render to each one. In the Greek, it's literally to each and every one. And the idea is, just as we enter the kingdom through the narrow gate, remember in Matthew 7, enter in through the narrow gate, for broad is the road to destruction. The idea of a narrow gate is like a turnstile. We don't have a lot of these anymore, but maybe the last time you went to an amusement park, you can think of this. You paid your ticket, and there's a metal turnstile that admits one person at a time. Okay, next person pays their ticket, one person. Two people can't go at the same time. A group can't go in together, one at a time. It's the same idea here. Just as salvation is one by one, so is judgment going to be one by one. So it's individual. And he also says it's according to the person's deeds, according to his deeds, his works. He's saying the fruit of your life will be ultimately inspected by God, and he will either accept it or reject it. Now, since God is judge, it would be important to understand what he considers to be good deeds or what he considers to be deeds, right, from his perspective. And as I mentioned last week, the Jews, they had their standard for keeping the law, right? And what was it? It was really the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. They could say, um, I've never physically murdered somebody, and so I'm not a murderer. Or they could say, I've never physically committed the act of adultery with another woman, and so I'm not an adulterer. But what does Jesus say? He properly defines what each of these is. He, he properly defines murder as hate that begins where? In the heart. And he properly defines Adultery as lust that begins in the heart. That's why Paul says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. You're judging all others, but you yourself are guilty. The problem is a hard and unrepentant heart. In chapter 16 of Romans 2, Paul's going to say this. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Where are secrets kept? They're kept in the heart, where no one can see, no man can see, but God can see. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you're starting to get the idea that deeds are not just outward visible deeds that we do, that, that men can can see, but they include those things that are invisible to the eye of man. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. This is a quote from Jonathan Edwards on this, but by works, we are to understand all voluntary exercises of the faculties of the soul. For instance, the words and conversation of men, as well as what is done with their hands. And then he quotes Matthew 12, 37, for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. So everything that's visible to man's eyes and everything that's invisible to men's eyes, but visible to God's eyes, that means hidden thoughts, 
motives. Um, every word, even careless idle words that we just say, even when no one's listening, all those things God considers deeds, works. Why? Because God is not one who looks on the appearance of man. Remember when he talked to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, and Samuel was to point the next or the king, Saul. And he said, don't look on the outward. The Lord doesn't see as man sees, but he looks on the heart. And isn't that exactly how he judged the antediluvian society, the world before the flood of Noah? The Lord says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. He looked at every intent of the thoughts and saw that they were only evil continually. So every deed is an action, but it's not just external, it can be internal. God sees it all. And every deed originates in the heart of man. You remember our Lord's teaching in Matthew 15? He said, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, False witness, blasphemies, these are the things that defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Okay, so I know I'm taking some pains to go through this, but it's important that we understand what deeds are, what works are. Because when Paul says good works and eternal life are rendered for good works, we'll have this in our minds. So then what does Paul do next? He separates out two groups of people in verses 7 through 10. He says that there are those who receive eternal life and there's those who receive eternal death. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And how does Paul characterize this first group who receive eternal life? Well, two things. They're marked by patient continuance. Your translation might also say perseverance. And they're doing that in one respect. They're, they're showing patient continuance in doing good, in well-doing, in doing good works. And secondly, they're those who seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So let's take these one at a time here. The first, they're marked by a, continuance, a, a, a patient continuance in doing good. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this, you should stop and, and say, what, Paul, do you mean by doing good? I mean, what exactly are good works? We celebrated Reformation uh, Sunday last week, and we spent some time talking and thinking about our brother Martin Luther, and we listened to that podcast, um, Luther in Real Time, uh, in the evening, and we heard about Luther when he um, had decided to become a monk and how he made that great journey from Erfurt, Germany, 639 miles on foot, walking to Rome. And how when he got there, he ascended the Scala um, Sancta, the, the uh, sacred steps, so-called, um, that Christ had ascended and descended before Pontius Pilate. And he, Martin Luther ascended those steps on his knees. And then when he got to the top, wearied and exhausted, he dropped some coins in a box 
and a, another monk uh, gave him a letter of indulgence in exchange. Are those good works? Luther certainly thought so at the time. And in fact, he was doing everything he could to earn favor with God and to try to deal with the problem of guilt. He had a conscience that, um, that ravaged him. It, 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 it screamed at him that, that he was guilty of so many sins. And even though he confessed, he couldn't ever get rid of the guilt. He would constantly remember more and more sins after he had confessed to his confessor. And he was deeply troubled. Or what about someone like George Whitfield, who, before he was converted, practiced asceticism? This is, um, you know, the harsh treatment of the body, basically. George Whitfield would, um, he was part of the Holy Club at Oxford. And the Holy Club was filled with these other men who were really trying to be holy in their own strength. They knew nothing about the grace of God. And so they did things like wear really uncomfortable clothing wool that would itch their skin and they would deprive themselves of food that they enjoyed. Um, and, and in fact, Whitfield had done that so much. He deprived himself so much that he emaciated himself and he almost died. He had to be bedridden for seven weeks to recover because he was trying to earn favor with God. He was trying to work good works. Well, what about today? What about community service? Do you consider that a good work? Or what about putting money in the offering box here at church? Or serving in the church. Are those good works? What does the scripture teach about man and doing good? Just turn a page over in Romans to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let's just take a look at verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> Actually, 9 through 12. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? The Jews relative to the Gentiles? Or the Greeks? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So Paul is quoting from Psalm 14 and from Psalm 53 in these verses. And he's pretty clear, right? There's no one righteous and therefore no one who does good, not even one. Okay, when we think about what we just read in Genesis chapter 6 about how God looked on the heart of man and he saw that the intents and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Um, Isaiah says that even our best righteousness, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. A filthy garment, soiled garment. Um, Jeremiah says in chapter 13, uh, you, uh, he says, um, can the leopard change his spots? And can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? And he says, so you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, you can't do good if you're accustomed to doing evil, why? Because that's your nature. A leopard can't change its spots because its nature is to be a leopard. An Ethiopian doesn't change the color of his skin because his nature is to be Ethiopian. Jesus says that a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces what? Bad fruit. So how can God reward a person for quote, doing good when no one does good clearly? 
Do you remember um, the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus in Matthew 19? And the rich young ruler came and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? <laughs> and the first thing Jesus says in response is, Why do you call me good? There's no one good but one. That is God. And then he says this, But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He points to works. You see, God alone is good. And God alone does good works. He is the fount of all goodness. He's the source. Man is born a sinner. And all he does is produce sin. He is like an unclean fountain. And all it does is spew forth sludge. Uncleanness. It's not able to produce Clear, clean water. Think about Genesis 1, the creation account. When God is creating the world day by day, what does he say after each day? He says, and he looked at it, and God saw that it was good. And at the end of his creation, he says he looked at all that he had done, everything he had made, and he saw that it was very good. So God is supremely pleased with himself and with the works of his own hands. That's the point. And now here's the question. Okay, man is sinful, he's evil, he can't do good works, I get it. God alone is good, he does good works, okay. So how can we become those who do good? Because clearly there are those who are rendered, rewarded eternal life for doing good. Well, the answer is that our nature must change. We must become a good tree, able to bear good fruit. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 through 25. First Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because, and then he quotes Isaiah 40, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Born again. This is radical stuff. Having been born again. By what? By an incorruptible seed through the word of God, he's saying the very seed of God, the life of God must be implanted in you in order for you to be reborn, to become a new person, somebody who has a different nature from your old nature. This is like the parable of the soils. Remember, there's four kinds of soil. And the fourth kind of soil is the only good soil. And it's in that soil that the seed, which is, we're told, the word of God goes forth into that good soil and does what? It takes root and it bears fruit in every case. Now, in different amounts, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100, but everyone who is um, who has that heart of the good ground and receives the incorruptible seed of the word of God such that it takes root and grows, produces fruit. We're talking about God 
dwelling in man. He's taking up residence in our hearts and lives. How? By the word of God, which is the seed. Christ himself in the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And if you are a Christian this morning, you have this incorruptible seed of God in you. Christianity is not just a matter of following certain principles uh, or teachings, but it is this, the life of God in the soul of a man. Let me repeat that. Christianity is this, it's the life of God in the soul of a man. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. God is indwelling us in order to empower us to live for his glory. Let me illustrate this with Ezekiel 36. I know I mentioned this the other week, but it's worth turning there. Turn to Ezekiel 36. This is the promise of the new covenant given in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, and I'm just going to read from verse 24 through verse 27. Listen to the Lord. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Let me ask you this. Who is it who changes our nature? Did you hear all the I wills in these verses? Six times in four verses, he says, I will. I will take you. I will cleanse you. I will give you. I will put my spirit. I will cause you to walk. Why does God do this? Brothers and sisters, there is no other explanation than grace. None of us deserves the goodness of God. This is his unmerited favor to sinners who only deserve his judgment, that he would even pay attention to us. Like Psalm 8 says, that you would be mindful of man, O Lord. Who is he that you would even pay attention to him? We are so small and so insignificant in the grand scheme of the entire universe of everything that's been made. And furthermore, we are also enemies toward God because we're born sinners and we have evil hearts, hard hearts that hate God, that don't like the light of truth. And God still in his infinite grace, in this sense, condescends to man and sets his love on some. And he blesses them in this way. And then only after he does his work of rescuing us, of cleansing us with the water of his word, does he do heart surgery on us? He removes the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And he puts his very Holy Spirit within us so that we can walk. There's the power in his statutes. There's the obedience. There's the good works, loved ones. It only happens after he's done his work of rescuing and saving us. You see, no works before that count for anything but for our condemnation. 
It's only after the grace of God comes upon us that we are able to work, not work for our righteousness, but work out the righteousness, work out our salvation that he has granted to us by grace. So he gives us the power by his Holy Spirit to do his very works, his good works. And not only the power, but the desire. Listen to Paul now in Philippians 2, 12 through 14. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Stop. So there's the works. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Keep going now. For it is God who works in you both to will, there's the desire, and to do, there's the ability, his good pleasure. So you see what's actually happening? This dynamic of the Christian life, God takes up residence inside of a man. And before he takes up residence, he has to fit that person. He has to outfit that person, prepare them as a home for him to come and dwell. He's not going to come into your sinful house and take up residence until he's swept house. In fact, he's going to blow up your house and recreate a whole new house. And then he will come because he is holy. Never forget that. God is thrice holy. And he cannot dwell with sin. So he must cleanse us. He must prepare us for his habitation. And once he's inhabited us, he works through us. That's why Paul says, walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Yield yourself to the leading of the Holy Spirit, because in the spirit alone can you do good works, the works of God. But in the flesh, your own works are worthless. They don't count for anything Okay, so now that I think we've established an understanding of what good works means, let's go back to Romans 2, verse 7. Who will render to each according to his deeds, verse 6, and then verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Patient continuance in doing good. That's also translated those who by perseverance in doing good. So here's the first thing to note. This group is marked by perseverance. Uh, patient continuance or perseverance. The Greek word is ipomoni. And it means, it's two words. A lot of times in Greek, you've got multiple words that are um, grouped together to form a compound word. In this case, we have ipo, which is hypo. That can mean low or it can mean underneath. And then moni is the word for meno, which means to remain, to dwell, to live. So he's literally saying those who abide underneath, live under, another way of saying that is to endure, to take patiently, to be steadfast and faithful, even in the midst of great trials and suffering. So those who by patient continuance in doing Good. Why do we need to show patience in doing good, loved ones? Well, because the world, the flesh, and the devil are dead set against us, aren't they? They're our enemies. I said ourselves, the lust of our own flesh is your enemy. 
it will seek to bring you down. It seeks to destroy you. But our alliance is with God, and he is stronger. That's why Paul says to the Galatians, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing good. Remain steadfast under the trials and the suffering, because everything that you do, you do unto the Lord. So we have this pattern of doing good in believers. It's a practice. It becomes a practice for us. So we're marked by perseverance and doing good. That should be the practice of our lives. And then notice what he says next, who seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Immortality is also translated incorruption. So those who seek for glory, honor, and immortality, whose glory, whose honor? Well, look at verse eight. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. So here's the contrast. There's those who are self-seeking, and there's those who seek for the glory of God. That's what he's talking about here. Those who seek for the glory of God first in their lives. That's how they're oriented. It's an attitude of the heart. You could say the aim of these people, those who receive eternal life, who are patient in doing good. The aim of these people is high. They've got their mind set on things above. Like Paul says to the Colossians, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Not on things of the earth. Or think of the Lord when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, clothing, food, drink, all the things that the Lord knows that we need, all those things will be added to you if your heart is oriented properly heavenward. And you seek the Lord's kingdom and his righteousness first. And brothers and sisters, this means not only that we want him to reign in our lives, but it should mean that we want him to reign in the lives of everyone on this planet. There is the call to evangelism. We want the glory of God in everyone's life. <sighs> Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, we're not seeking glory in the eyes of men. That's that false standard that we talked about earlier back in verse 2. God's judgment is according to truth. It's according to his standard. It's in his eyes that we should be chiefly concerned with living his glory. But... There is a sense in which we also do seek our own glory, honor, and incorruption. And how is that? We seek it in the world that is to come. We don't seek it in this world. The world seeks instant gratification and glory among men. They want to be honored here and now. We seek a future gratification in a country that is to come. The writer to the Hebrews said this of Abraham, he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. He was convinced as he was called out of Ur and he was called to go where he didn't know that the land he was viewing with his eyes was not the, the home that he was to ultimately set his foot on and rest. He was looking for a heavenly country. 
In fact, all the patriarchs were told in that famous 11th chapter of Hebrews, the hall of faith, if you will, they died not having received the promises, but they saw them afar off and were assured, there's the faith, assured of them and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They sought a better homeland. They sought glory, honor, and incorruption in a heavenly country, a heavenly home, and a heavenly body. That's the doctrine of glorification. We are going to be glorified. We are redeemed now, in a sense. Our soul, our spirit has been redeemed, saved. It is in heaven now with the Lord. But our body is still on the earth, isn't it? Our body, our flesh hasn't been redeemed yet. But there is coming a day when the Lord will raise our bodies incorruptible. We will be given glorious bodies like his glorious body. And that is how we will be able to see him face to face. So verse 7 is a description of how the godly are oriented. They persevere in doing good. That means God's works done through the Holy Spirit. And the attitude of their heart is Godward, oriented toward him. To those, God says he will, return, he will render eternal life. Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So the first group is marked by perseverance in doing good and aiming heavenward. The second group is marked by selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, self-seeking, eritheia, it means contentious, one who strives. This is actually a bit of a difficult word um, in the Greek because the idea is literally that of electioneering for office. That's how it would have been understood in the New Testament. In other words, one who desires to put himself forward for office. He's um, promoting himself. He's seeking his own glory. That's the idea. And Paul is going to redefine, like the Lord does, he's going to redefine exactly what a Jew is, a true Jew, at the end of chapter 2. He says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but of God. You see, the true Jew, the, true Jew, the child of God, is one who seeks his praise from God. His glory comes from the Lord and not from men. So they are self-seeking and they are told, we're told next, they don't obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. Listen to Paul in the sixth chapter of this letter to the Romans. He says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Loved ones, it's important that we know the truth, but knowing it is not enough. We must obey the truth. The truth is to be obeyed. That's why Paul calls the obedience of faith. He calls out the obedience of faith in the first chapter. Faith is to be obeyed. Truth is to be obeyed. The self-seeking, they don't obey the truth. That tells you something interesting in contrast to the culture we live in. It tells you that the truth is not natively inside of a person. Because people have no problem obeying their own heart, following the dictates of their own heart. No, the truth is the truth of God, which comes from outside of us. It's objective. 
and it comes down by revelation. And man in sin, under the abandonment of God and apart from the grace of God, will reject that truth 100% of the time and obey the lie. Those who don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, here's what's stored up for those who are marked by that lifestyle, indignation and wrath. This is really the principle of sowing and reaping in action. What the ungodly sow in verse 8, which is an attitude of selfishness, seeking their own glory, here they reap as indignation and wrath. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say tribulation and anguish. Indignation and wrath, very similar words. They basically mean the passion of God that is aroused against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Tribulation, thlipsis, it means a pressing together. Pressure is the idea. And anguish, that means narrowness of, of a place. Extreme affliction. So this is just another description of what hell is. Hell is pressure in a narrow place. It's like being incarcerated in a jail where there's pressure constantly and it never goes away. Conscious torment in a confined space for all eternity. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. So take note of this. It's not what a person imagines themselves to be, but what they